I recently visited some friends in their suburban home, and in their living room, they had a big, beautiful fireplace. And in the fireplace was a video of a fire. And they had a sound bar, a little sound bar in front of it, so there was the sound of crackling. And it was really pleasant. It felt wintry. It felt very Christmassy. And it actually struck me as perhaps better than having an actual fire. Uh, isn't it so much more efficient and safe and controllable? You did not have to spend the morning chopping wood. So I had no guilt feeling that he had to put on a fire for us. You just press the button when you want it. And you press the button when it goes off. He probably doesn't have to pay to have his chimney cleaned. I imagine that that would be a risk. But as a Manhattan dweller, what was exciting about this, as opposed to an actual fire, is I could do this in my place. I could actually just put my TV out, or if anybody really has a vision for it, there's probably some way to construct a fake fireplace because it's impossible in Manhattan to, to actually get an actual fireplace in most buildings. And so now you can construct a fake one and you can get the TV in there and you can get the sound bar and you could have that experience. And so in many ways, it actually is better, but because it's not a real fire, there are certain things. There's that pleasant smell that you associate isn't there. And I'm sure with three minutes of Googling, you could probably find some kind of spray that you could get delivered to your house so you could have that. Uh, no warmth, no warmth from the fire. And you know, in a suburban home, I, I assume he has a thermostat so you get your exact temperature in New York. You usually have two choices, too hot or too cold, and you just need to manage that by knowing uh, how high the window should go in terms of the temperature outside. But you could fix that in terms of a, a screen not giving warmth by getting a space heater. You'll just need to do some research to make sure that you don't melt your TV. Uh, but there's, there's things that you can do so that all of us could have that experience. And, and maybe without the aroma, maybe without the warmth, but it's so much safer. It's so much more efficient. It's so much more predictable. And that's what most of us want is safe, efficient, predictable, controllable. But one of the things that we find from a life that's overly safe, predictable, and controllable is then life becomes boring. And yes, through our screens, we have access to every stunt and to every great lecture and anything that you would find exciting, stimulating, whatever it is, you have access to it through your screen, but with the safety of being able to view it and being able to turn it off if it winds up boring midway. But, but something about that keeps us from entering into the excitement of what we're viewing, and it leaves us sitting there with our relatively unexciting lives bored. And so one symptom of modern life is just a sense in which maybe we're a bit bored. But being bored doesn't mean we don't feel anything, because another symptom of this uh, life that we've created for ourselves is anxiety. That's a bit strange. So we're actually safer, we have more control, and we're bored, but we also tend to be worried. This is not everyone, but, but one of the questions being asked is why are we more anxious? Why is there more stress? Why is there more fear? And I recently read a book on the uncontrollability of the world, and one of the thesis of this book was that actually 
an odd byproduct of all of the progress to control things is that we actually make the world less controllable and therefore anxiety is a natural byproduct or at the least we're more in tune with how control works that we feel like the world is less controllable. But it's interesting that actually all of our efforts to make the world more controllable uh, can have the opposite effect. An example being from the last century after the war to end all wars, World War I, there was yet, surprise, another war, World War II. And in a war, you want to gain control. You want to use your power, your technology. And so it was used in a way that uh, from, from an American perspective, the development of something like the atomic bomb allowed the kind of control to say, we're going to take charge, we're going to establish peace, except that now the reality is we know that all war is not ended. And now it's inevitable before anyone can figure out this technology. And so the latter half of the 20th century was filled with anxiety that we might destroy civilization. And it's not that everything works that way, but what's interesting is any time we make things safer, more predictable, more controllable, for some reason we're, we're always creating the possibility of a new danger. And what do anxious people do when we worry as we look for the next solution? Well, if the anxiety is bigger than something you could just figure out in your own life, typically we look for some great powerful figure, a leader, and certainly with the various source of his, sources of anxiety and the scale in the last few years of illness and disease and war and social division, one of the things that we've done is we've sought out maybe more extreme leaders than we would at a different time globally. So now we get to the Christmas story where the themes are peace and joy. Those are the things that I think we really want. And maybe if unless you've become so cynical that you've, you resent them or you're managing your expectations, peace and joy are what we want. But how do we get it? And sometimes we, in our anxiety, think we just need somebody who's going to come in in some powerful way and destroy everything that's bothering us. But what's interesting is if you read the early stories in the Bible of the birth of Jesus, where peace is announced, where people are expressing joy, we find that these are people who did not have power and influence. They're people that did not have a lot of control. Their lives were not easy. Read through all of the figures in Luke's gospel and Matthew's gospel, and yet they had joy. What was it that gave them joy? Well, one of the key themes of the Christmas story is that a king was born. Now, again, we're uh, at least in this gathering in the United States in the uh, 21st century, the concept of a king seems like an odd thing for us to be celebrating. But if you go through the, the story of the Bible and understand how those people got to that particular moment that you read about in the narratives with Jesus' birth, you find that actually the birth of somebody that was proclaimed to be a king is one of the reasons they felt peace might be something they can grasp, might be why in that moment they had joy. And so I want to walk through the five readings that we heard, um, picking up on a major thread of the Bible. So that way, if we want to reflect this year, what is Christmas about? One component of it, it's the person who was born was born a king. 
And there's something there that opens up possibilities. And so let me walk through the, the five readings. We began in Genesis 1, the very opening of the Bible, where God de demonstrates his power and his wisdom by ordering everything so that all things are good. And then he creates humanity. So in verse 27 of Genesis 1, humanity is made in God's image and likeness, which means what God just did is supposed to somehow be reflected in what human beings do. We're to use power with wisdom so that we make things good, so that things are better, and so that actually we are creating and making and sustaining life. And so in Genesis 28, there's the mandate as those who reflect, those who bear God's image to subdue the earth and to have dominion over the living beings. Now those words, maybe for some of us, don't sound exciting. In the context of Genesis 1, everything is good. Now you imitate that, go and do it. We don't live in that world. We live in the world where there's corruption, where there's abuse, where there's hostility, there's war, there's violence. So the charge to people, go subdue the earth, we hear as exploit the earth, get everything you can out of it, because you're going to be gone this generation, and don't worry about whether or not you're destroying it. But that's not the mandate. The mandate to subdue the earth is to handle it wisely so that it flourishes. Have dominion over the living beings. The word dominion sounds enough like the word domination, that human beings with power ruling over others doesn't sound very exciting. But here, how did God exercise his power to order and to give life? And he charges human beings to have dominion over the living creatures, the things that crawl, swim, and fly. We've crossed the boundary where now we want dominion over human beings and God, if we can. And so we're not reflecting God's wisdom in our exercise of power, but we're exercising power in a way that is problematic. And so when you go to Genesis 49, the second reading, we've already got this sense, if you're reading the Bible uh, from the beginning, that history immediately gets complicated. And yet the Bible calls us to focus on one particular family, this guy Jacob, whose name is changed to Israel, he will become a nation. Kind of an absurd promise if you read the story that, that they're in powerful Egypt under their rule and authority, and they have some influence uh, for a variety of reasons. But it seems strange to say that actually if you follow this family one day, many years later, there will be a king, a ruler. And so of the 12 sons of Israel, our reading from Genesis 49, in verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. The Bible is sort of saying, as you, as you read through the Bible now, if you keep your eyes on one particular descendant of Jacob, on Judah, and you, if you're mindful of that tribe, you will see that as the story is told, they play a particular role throughout the whole rest of the Bible. And what's interesting there in verse 10, it says, until tribute comes to him, this ruler, this king. Scanning quickly ahead to Matthew 2, these magi who come from the nations to bring gifts to the one who is born. It's crazy to think that so many years before, um, God makes that promise uh, via Israel, and then 
And then we, we have the stories that trace and follow it down. So Deuteronomy 17, the third reading. Moses is about to die, and he's giving instructions to his people. Remember all that God has made known. In Deuteronomy 17, he says, now a day is going to come when you're going to ask for a king. That's interesting. They had a king. Who was their king? It was God. But we can't see God. Well, but you've heard his voice. You have his revelation. But here's something. The other nations can't see God either. (laughs) So that seems to disadvantage us. So Moses seems to say at some point, you're going to want a king, not only a king that you can see, but a king that the nations can see because you're going to want to be like them. When the time comes, yes, God will choose a king for you, but this king will be different. Now, here's three ways the king will be different from Deuteronomy 17, uh, Deuteronomy 17, verses 16 and 17. Three things that are highlighted. First, your king should not have a lot of horses. So no stables, no animals, move to the city. No, the problem is not with horses. It's not an equestrian life that God's people were to avoid. Horses at that time period was military power. You've got a group of people with swords and clubs, but if you have horses and chariots, you are superior. Now he might say, uh, God's king should not have chemical weapons and atomic bombs. So you shouldn't have horses. You should not have many wives. So uh, sex and pleasure should not be the driving force of the king. And the, and the third thing is that you should not have great possessions, wealth, status. And it makes the modern reader say, you know, being a king is hard. Why else would anyone want to take on that responsibility? <laughs> unless you could sort of build a big army and have everybody afraid of you, unless you had access to the pleasure. In other words, if everyone was there to make you feel good, unless you had the kind of possessions and status so everyone admired you and you could make anyone do for you what you wanted, why would you take that on? Verse 19 says the, the king that God wants must learn from God because that, that king is to imitate God. Verse 20, it's interesting, so that his heart might not be lifted up above his brothers. Again, why would I go through all the trouble of bearing that responsibility if I didn't have some advantage over everybody else? Why be the king? And Moses is saying, when you want a king, this is the kind of king you should desire. But you read through the Bible and you find even there, that's not the kind of king that people wanted and who actually ruled over them. So in 2 Samuel, the fourth reading, chapter 17, it comes time to choose a king. Now, the interesting thing is there is already a king, Saul. And Saul actually was an impressive figure. He was tall. He was strong. He was a warrior. He looked to be a good king, but you read that story and it didn't work out. So now God sends Samuel to anoint a king, and he goes to Bethlehem because Bethlehem was one of the territories in Judea, the tribe of Judah. And it's an interesting story. One of the key things in the choosing of the king, because David had older brothers who were seen first and they looked sufficiently impressive to Samuel. Uh, But in verse 17, God says, none of these are the ones that I've selected. And his rationale in verse 7 is for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance but the Lord looks on the heart. 
modern people think of the heart as emotion. He's not just talking about emotion, he's talking about who this person really is. There's the exterior of what you could see, and then there's the reality of who the person is. Human beings only know the, rea- the exterior. God knows the reality, so he's saying, when I'm choosing a king, I'm looking at who this person really is. And an interesting detail in verse 11, um, why are none of these, or what's the instruction that none of these sufficiently strong, handsome sons could be the king? He says, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And when you read the Bible, what is the picture of the king? Is it the warrior in some ways? Is it the wise person who could build palaces in some ways? Is it the person that has all these possessions in some ways? But one of the dominant metaphors is God's ruler is like a shepherd. Shepherds back then were not high-status people, high-influence, high-control. But they were courageous, they were strong, they were wise, they were competent. God chooses David, this young boy, whose heart was with him, who would lead in a way that mostly reflected God, and he was a shepherd. So that's an important part of the story. And I'm mentioning those things because now we go to the last reading, Matthew 2. And there's a number of interesting things that come together. Uh, So first of all, it says in verse 1, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, so that's not incidental. So remember David, many years before, but now the story's coming together. The time, the place, the teachings, the instructions. We go back to Bethlehem of Judea, where, where Israel's great king, David, was from. But it's interesting, it says, in the days of Herod the king. There's this odd reality. Israel had a king, but the king was put over them by the Romans. Herod was declared by the Roman council king of Judea. The Romans decided this is the king of the Jews. Uh, faithful Jews of the first century did not like Herod. Um, his lineage, he was actually in the, in the lineage an Edomite. You want to read a complex story? Read the story of the Edomites and how the prophets hated them. Um, read Psalm 137. Uh, there's a number of places you can go. We have a, somebody whose ancestry is to Esau, <laughs> who was appointed by the Romans, and he's the king of the Jews. So these magi, not knowing that story, they come with a question. These wise men, so uh, there's that story about the kings that come bringing gifts um, because Jesus is the king of kings. But we don't think that they were kings, they were magi. And from the east, now that's also an interesting story because Israel over the years has been dominated by several nations, Egypt, where it begins, um, but the Babylonians, the Persians and the Medes, and then you wind up having the Greeks and the Romans. And when Nebuchadnezzar and the the Babylonians were over Israel, how could you deal with that power? When the Medes and the Persians and Artaxerxes and these other figures, how could you deal with those powers? Babylon no longer has power. The Persians no longer have power. Now Rome does. These Persian, Babylonian, Magi figures are now coming because they're excited that they heard a king was born to these people. (laughs) The people that many years ago they ruthlessly dominated. And now they're just another dominated people. 
And so they come because God brings people from these nations to come because a king is being born. And so in verse 11, they open their treasures, they offer gifts. It's starting to happen. The nations that once ruled with an iron fist are now coming to bring gifts to the one who is born. And it's interesting as the story is coming together, it's the universe that God created. So the, these magi were astronomer, astrology types. Those are very different. I'm not sure how much they were astronomy, how much they were astrology, but there it is. They're looking at the heavens and they're being led by the way the universe is ordered. But in Jerusalem, they hear about the birth of a king. What do they do? They open the Bible. What does the Bible say? Well, the king will be born in Bethlehem of Judea. So now the scriptures and the universe are coming together to point us to this one who is born. And so in verse 2, they come with the question, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And then it says, Herod and all of them were troubled. And the reason everybody else would be troubled is because Herod was troubled. If you read the extra-biblical resources about Herod, he was ruthless, violent. Caesar himself uh, said, you're better uh, not being one of Herod's children. Um, here's this ruthless, violent human being, appointed king of the Jews by the Romans, knowing that the faithful did not respect him or desire to follow him. And he hears the question from the nations, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Uh-oh, things are going to get worse before they get better. Um, but there's that scripture as, they, as, as God's people open up to find out, well, well, where do we look? Maybe we don't trust the star that led them. Verse 6, re reminding them of that promise from of old, for from you, Judah, Bethlehem, shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so think about the angels, the ministering servants of God. Think about the shepherds in the Christmas story. And here's one who's born a king, but he's born in very humble circumstances to a very humble people. And yet that's part of the beauty of the Christmas story. Um, how do human rulers work? You make deals, you threaten, you impress people. Uh, you, you impress them with what you have and they could have. You impress them with what you could take from them if they cross you. We have a shepherd, a shepherd who comes among the people. He doesn't lift his head above them as though he is better, but he, he gets close enough that he starts to smell like them, that he walks with them, he protects them, he uses his wisdom to bring them somewhere. The birth of this child is the birth of a king, but, but we don't recognize it because it's not the way that human beings exercise power or leadership or influence or authority. It's the way that God always said that people should use that image to reflect and imitate him. And so let's not forget that Jesus was not an easy-to-understand figure. He was constantly misunderstood, and yet there was something threatening about him. No chariots, no wives, no possessions, and yet Rome determined he was dangerous enough to crucify him. And remember, with irony, they put a sign over his head on the cross, the king of the Jews. That's an interesting response to a guy who healed the sick, 
and announced good news to the poor. There's something going on here that God is entering the world in order to expose its troubles, but also to transform it. And in that way, the Christmas story is a climactic ending to the Bible, the whole Bible leading to the New Testament that talks about Jesus, his arrival, what he said and did, his coming again. But the interesting thing is, it's not the ending of history. It's not that this is a happy ending as if the Bible was a fairy tale. Look at all these miserable things that happened and all these bad figures, but in the end, there's a happy ending. When Jesus comes, he doesn't bring a happy ending. He brings a new beginning, and that's important. Jesus comes to make it possible that anyone who hears his invitation could live a different way. That, that human beings who think the only way to get through this world is with power and with pleasure and uh, with possessions. And Jesus comes among us and says, I will lead you to a better place. And so you don't have to pursue those things, but you're going to have to trust me. And so in trusting him, the one who is the image of the invisible God, the birth of Jesus at, at Christmas opens a new door to say that actually the very things that you pursue, thinking they will bring peace and joy, are not. But if you're willing to trust God rather than what you see, you will find that he will provide those things for you if you discern who's the king according to God's standards, God's provision, God's appointment. If you receive that king, your life will not look right away like it's getting better, but it will start to get much better. And so, first of all, let me say to our boredom problem, Jesus does not promise that following him will be easy, that you will be safe, or that the things you fear won't necessarily come about. Jesus does promise he will lead you through life. And that invitation to follow him means uh, go out into the world and and constantly choose to live this radically different way. Don't love the things that everyone loves, but do the things that Jesus did. I think some of us are bored because we're just not doing that. <laughs> I think if we took more time to say, today I'm going to go out and I'm going to do something that exercises or reflects the wisdom and power of God somewhere, watch for that opportunity. What could I do today that brings healing, that builds up, that shows a different way of living in the world? We'll find actually the world is a lot more interesting than just staying home and watching what other people do on our screens. So the Christian life is meant to address our boredom, but if this king really is ruling, um, then we also have help with our anxiety. It is remarkable that so many years before God announced from this small people that one day the whole world will come to join with this people. And here we are in New York City, um, believing, many of us, that this king is the fulfillment. Um, it means that actually, while we don't know what God is doing in the details of our lives, God is somehow wisely still over history. And so, yes, we have all sorts of legitimate things that we worry about. But if we have a shepherd who is leading us through and who says by his promise, if you follow me, 
uh, one day you will, you will see with clarity it has all been worth it. It means that we don't need to be overwhelmed by our current worries. It means that history is governed by one who is good and wise and powerful. Even if this moment people are seizing power and authority and using it in ways that are causing all of the troubles, all of the things that we fear. What we're told is, but in the grand scheme of things, God will always uh, show his wisdom. And so, so hold to that and hope to that. And it's not that you will never worry because we're human beings, but your worries don't need to rule over and dominate you. And so what's interesting about the, the Bible story, there's a verse in the New Testament that says, cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. And that's the difference between this king and the kings that we see giving State of the Union addresses or going out to war on our TVs. This king is a king who comes near. He comes among his people. He sends his spirit, which means that God's people are to have an aroma. And it means that there's a warmth, uh, that this king is different because he loves his people. This shepherd lays down his life. And so to the anxious, to the worried, to the confused, what we're told is this king is over history, but this king sees and loves you and comes to walk with you and invite you to walk with him. And that helps us to, to experience his peace when we trust him. It, it helps us to have moments of joy when we see that despite this chaotic world, God still occasionally breaks in and does something kind for us. And so, so this is hard to see. But the Bible is trying to reshape our imagination to say what you think of as the great human being is usually misinformed. This Christmas, we can go back and say, how does God define a great person? And what is the nature of the son that he sends? You have a very different perspective. When I was growing up, my parents had a friend who looked exactly like Kenny Rogers, the country western singer. In the 80s, when he was very popular, that was quite troubling for him because everywhere he went, people thought, there's Kenny Rogers. And most people had a laugh and took it quite well when he said, I'm not Kenny Rogers, I just look like him. But one person came to him asking for an autograph. And I would be tempted to be the nice guy and just want to make the guy happy and write, you know, Write something, sign it, Kenny Rogers. But that would be untrue. It would be fraudulent. So this person said, I am not Kenny Rogers. And the response was this person thought it was Kenny Rogers, arrogantly trying to blow off a fan. So he left with the distinct impression, Kenny Rogers is a jerk. <laughs> and I don't know what happened after that, if it ever cleared up, who he told. But here's the thing, he, he did not meet Kenny Rogers. He just met somebody he thought was Kenny Rogers. The world is filled with people who say, I, I want nothing to do with God. Uh, God who doesn't care for us, God who does all of these various things. And, and the Bible is saying, if that's what you're thinking, you may not have met God. You might have just drawn close to something that seemed like God because it was big and powerful, because it was impressive. Um, if you want to know what God is like, when you draw near, there needs to be that warmth of the love of God who sends Jesus into the world. Because at the end of the day, you don't find God by looking for him. He finds you 
by sending Jesus to go and to invite you to follow him. And it's that kind of thing that says, if, if that's the one God puts over us, the one who came as an infant, the one who came helpless, the one who came to a poor community, the one who came to a dominated nation, and within that says, I will change the world. It means it's the kind of God that we can't figure out, we can't expect, we can't invent. We just need to receive. And so the Christmas story is an occasion to reshape our imaginations, to, to invite us to say, you know, cast your fears upon me. <laughs> um, reorient your goals and your priorities. And you will find if you do that, there is a piece of God that passes our understanding. Uh, and he will give it to you. So this Christmas, you cannot plan your Christmas holiday to guarantee that it will go how you want. What I would do, or, and what I'm still planning on doing to have joy and peace that day, is I'm going to take time off. I'm going to eat the things that I normally don't let myself eat. I'm going to relax. But I know I may not sleep the night before. I may have a family member who's sick and can't come. I may get a text message right before dinner that distracts me so that by the time I'm done eating my dinner, I realized I wasn't paying attention to it because I was thinking about other things. I'm still planning to have that enjoyable day. We can't control that. And that's the thing. We can't control anything. But we have a king who rules over all things, and he watches over us and protects us, and he's with us. Somehow, if we can believe that, we'll find that joy and peace really can be part of our experience this Christmas. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we are a people longing for joy, a people longing for peace, and I suspect most of us um, really don't have it as we would desire. And so, Lord, where it is possible because of your grace, make it a reality in our hearts and minds. Lead us, change us, bless us this season that as we remember you, um, the warmth of your grace and love would, would be felt by all in our midst, by the power of your spirit, so that we would experience something of that peace. Do that work, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.